Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name's John Lias and joining me tonight, as always, we have Brendan Conley from SlashFilm.com. It's just the two of us tonight. We're going to go through a couple of the films that are out in the last week or so. Then we're going to move on to a bit of film news. And then, as always, we're going to be bringing you our marvellous films that we think you may not have seen, but we love and we cherish and we're going to try and bring them to you. It's still untitled, but we have had a few people coming uh, and emailing us with a few suggestions, so thank you. Thank you very much for that. Do keep them coming in. Um, we're going to move on to the very, very first film that we're going to look at today. This was out last Wednesday um, and uh, I think has done pretty well so far. It's uh, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant's uh, first feature film, uh, co-directed and, and co-written. Uh, it's called Cemetery Junction and it's uh, about these three young kids. Um, they're on the verge of adulthood and it's about them discovering themselves, working out what they want in the future. There's a, uh, it's, it's all based in. I don't think it's named as Reading, but it is definitely. Um, oh, it is Redding. named as Reading. It is named as Reading. Shall I tell you where? Is it she where said, she, said, is it, she says about you know there are parts of Reading you've never yeah, seen. Yeah, okay, yeah, that, and that's the scene with Ricky Gervais and 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 his family, isn't it? But the three guys in it, we have. Um, uh, Christian Cook, who plays Freddy, we have Tom Hughes, who plays his uh, friend Bruce, and then we have uh, Jack Doolan, I believe is his name, he plays Snork, and they're these three guys, and you can tell that they've been together um, since childhood, and they have different aspirations, some of them are kind of just stuck in, in this dead-end town, in this dead-end job, but Freddy, who's the person who we kind of latch on to, it's him and his journey um, in terms of uh, where he wants to go, he he has aspirations to become uh, an insurance salesman, and he joins the local firm, and he wants the house, and he wants the kids, uh, and he believes that's aspirational enough. Um, Brendan, you've seen this. I also saw it about three or four weeks ago, maybe even uh, earlier than that. So it's not that fresh in my mind. But what did you think of of this film? And what did you think? Uh, what do you think of of Gervais and Merchant as a sort of writing and directing combo? Uh, I'm not really a fan of Gervais and Merchant, to, to be honest. I, I thought the invention of lying was, was, was terrible. And I know that doesn't really reflect on, on Mr. Merchant. It reflects more on, on Mr. Gervais. And, and I definitely prefer the US office over the, the UK one. But I've got to say, I, I, I quite liked this film. I think it's, it's all right. It's got some stuff going for it. There's a lot wrong with it. But I liked it rather more than I think it was actually good. I, I kind of took it to heart a little bit. You see, no, I was the same. When I, when I came out, I go, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you. I've, I've seen maybe two or three episodes of The Office. I've never seen extras. I haven't seen Invention of Lying because I don't necessarily like uh, Ricky Gervais as a as a sort of as, as a as a comi- uh, comedic personality. I, I don't know what he's like in real life, but the character that he plays. I remember seeing uh, Brendan. You might remember this. There was a show called The Eleven O'Clock Show, uh, which was sort of in the late nineties, maybe early uh, part of two thousand, um, and it had uh, Ricky Gervais. He was kind of one of the people that. That, that came on and, and, and did a bit and I did not like his, his I thought his humour was really sarcastic and uh, quite dull and that's kind of coloured everything that's, that, that's come after I mean the, the bits in the office that I saw were, were, were fine but everyone seemed to just take it to heart and think this is the best thing I've ever seen like it's the new Faulty Towers which frankly is balls but um, you've got to respect them for, for not milking that cow and sort of moving on to a few other things but going into this film I didn't expect that much from it and one of the things that I noticed very early on that I was actually really, really pleased about was that they didn't try and cram in celebrity friends. They didn't appear themselves that much. Stephen Merchant's got a cameo and Ricky Gervais has a, like a, a very smallish part in it. 
but they found these three guys, these three actors who carry the story and they do it really well. Uh, even though it's nothing groundbreaking, you've seen this like a million times before with these kids and they're very friendly and they're a bit silly and a bit leery and they, they get up to, you know, it's all, all sorts of, um, you know, capers, but um, there is real personality in in each one of them and you do really feel what they're feeling. It kind of took me back to when I was around their age, 19, or, you know, 20 and thinking, where do I want to go with my life? Do I want to kind of get out of, 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 of this place, you know, um, or am I just going to just carry on and, and just get the job in the bank and, and, and all the rest of it. But um, I was really, really pleased to see that they didn't over-egg it. it was, I found it really touching and that's maybe not that much of a popular opinion, but um, I think that they, they kind of hit all the beats you know, really, really well. Like I said, it's nothing groundbreaking, but there are a couple of performances, Tom Hughes in particular, I really, really liked him. I thought he was really strong as um, as the sort of, you know, as, as, as the cool um, and slightly uh, out of control. It, it's Bruce. the best writing, that character. Because, yeah, because we, we slowly come to understand that he's he's got this sort of violence underneath. And though though the, art, the sort of explanation for the violence is, again, quite familiar, it's actually, it, it's the most plausible uh, piece of characterization in the film i think yeah um and the most dimensional and and i think i think he's quite good anyway i don't know if you saw the um uh andy circus the injury thing but but he was in that too he played uh chad Ch- jankal and um yeah i think he's uh i think he's interesting isn't he i think he's one to watch yeah he really is a really strong presence and whereas you've got um christian cook who plays freddie he's the kind of um the one who's a bit more uh, a bit more clean a bit more um you know together bit of a wet blanket though isn't he doesn't really leave much of an impression it was the it was the relationship with him and i don't know the name of the actress who plays felicity jones felicity jones thank you yeah uh i i thought that um she she was really up for you know for for going away you know traveling abroad and and kind of waiting for 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 life you know to do something a a bit special but uh i didn't kind of buy the fact that he was also that up for it i thought he still at the end of the film i thought he still wanted to have you know the wife and the kids but um where and and jack doolan as as snork he um he's the sort of the third one of the trio he's a bit of comic relief Um, yeah he's a bit like a disney warthog or something isn't he he's a bit like an animal in a disney cartoon yeah he is but he does a you know a great rendition of come on feel the noise followed by a particularly fine joke about naughty witch that really really made me laugh and i was you know i had a lot of fun with it like i said it, it, it doesn't do anything particularly you know um different but there are scenes with bruce uh, tom the tom hughes character and it's about him discovering parts of his past why his father is like the way he is um in in the um in the prison cell with the uh, with the big welsh police guy yeah it doesn't it's not it's not 100 percent, but i think it, it it's actually i i did like that scene i liked that scene a great deal i'd seen it before uh it, it was sort of thing we see a lot of in bbc play for the day just the sort of thing do you know what i mean it's quite mm. a staple of the of the subgenre but but um it worked here because it's where all of our where everything was leading and where everything went afterwards in the plot line that we were most invested in really it was like a nexus in that plot line it really was but it was crucial as well and um and then of course you had the the fallout of of that um of that scene and i thought that the, the, they, they played it really well the, the dialogue was not that cliched when you consider how cliched the actual situation is but the fact is that it did have a change because it's you know the, in, in the next scene where you had bruce and his dad who basically spends the whole time smoking and drinking uh, on the sofa watching the telly and there's a really really nice ending to their to their story um and that pretty much is 
is how the film played out for me. It, you know, there, there were a couple of really, really good scenes, like the one we just mentioned. Uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the retirement ball where you have two actors who we've not named yet, but um, Felicity Jones, um, her character, it's it's her parents, Ray Fiennes and Emily Watson. They they play as husband and wife. Ray Fiennes is this uh, very um, male chauvinist uh, set in his ways. He's the insurance guy who Freddie goes to work for. I have to say that he gave a really, really good performance. The character itself, you've probably seen quite a few times, but he was really, really interesting. And his his performance in that retirement um, in that retirement scene was just fantastic. He was so crass and he was so unfeeling um, that. But he, he, he actually he did a really good job of putting a mask of insincere feeling over the top of it. Mm. You know, what I, mean? I mean, it was it was. I, I think that's the moment when that character worked um, mm. because because the, the way he played it stopped it being too too simplistic i think really. absolutely and of course his his character has such a effect on virtually everybody else um that he needs to work properly you wouldn't necessarily believe emily watson who i think did a really really good job with not an awful you know with not an awful lot of um of dialogue but it was all in her performance it was all in the fact that she was like a downtrodden wife who had to give up when she's quiet things. though she always looks a little bit spaced out to me oh you think <laughs> Yeah, I, wonder, I, wonder, I wonder, I wonder. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of housewives in that period were being uh, given a lot of sleeping tablets, so maybe that's what she was going for. But there was a certain sort of uh, tramadol feel, mogadon feel to the performance in places. But, I, but I, again, I think that that worked, and it was really nice to sort of see those two and, and Bruce's dad as the shining examples of what you could become if you don't, you know, take the road less travelled by. Um, and... I have to say that I, I haven't seen it for maybe a couple of months now, and um, I, I still remember certain bits of it. I still, you know, sort of happily think back to it. So I think I'll be happy to catch it again. I'm not sure how well it's doing, but um, there are a couple of other good good people. Matthew Good, um, who you may have seen in A Single Man, or hopefully you won't have seen in you know the Watchmen film. He's really really excellent. The Lookout Man. If you want to see Matthew Good at his best, get The Lookout. Matthew Good's fantastic. Oh seriously? In, in The Lookout, he's just he's just. Whoa, him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, what more can you want from a film? Okay, well, I haven't even heard of that, so that's another recommendation. What? you got a free one tonight then, John. Yeah, yeah, you could be <laughs> The Lookout, yeah? Okay, I'll take it to heart. Yeah, the first film directed by Scott Frank, one of uh, America's best screenwriters. Oh, okay. Well, then, is when when was that released? Maybe two, three years ago. Okay, excellent. Well, I, I really like Matthew Good. I think he was really good in A Single Man, um, in the bits that he was in, and I really liked him in this he was just the most oily and insipid guy and he really really works 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 really well and that's what i really liked about the film the fact that they got these actors to play these you know relatively standard parts but everyone did really well and the writing i think um did elevate it it, it was kind of like the you know the best of both bit, worlds. bit iffy though wasn't it i mean some of the writing was was plain bad i mean the first joke in the film is just sort of, i thought it was just naff the bit where they were talking about vaughan williams and he said you know stop playing all this this music by gays listen to a bit of Alton john and it was just sort of like i mean okay i get it but it sort of that was quite a sledgehammer wasn't it yeah, it was, there were a few of those jokes that were kind of a bit too on the nose, I think, really. And and when it when it went down that path, I was I was a bit disappointed because at its best, it was like, a, and I mean this <laughs> in the best possible way, it was like a pale imitation of Raining Stones or a pale imitation of something like The Apartment, and and uh, you know, pale not to the point of being completely translucent, but to just not really being you know as vibrant and and, and brilliant as, as either of those are, but. At its worst, it was like a pale imitation of, of like The Office. That's it, and I mean that um, 
was I think that joke was there, obviously to get a kind of a cheap laugh, but also to set the scene a little bit, which I think they actually did a really, really good job with this, like 1973, 72, something like that. And it looks, you know, from from what I understand, I wasn't even born then, but it looks right. The world looks um, complete. And they didn't necessarily need that, I don't think, just to kind of... Um, no, I don't think I, they needed it at all. I think I think the secret heroes here are Anna Higginson, David Hindle, and, and Andy Grogan, who are the, the sort of production and art design team, and uh, Ruth Myers, who did the costume. I think that they, they did a great job, really. Um, R- Ruth Myers' costumes in places are... are a little overreaching. I mean, there's hints of Frank Kubelik in some of the stuff that they've given Felicity Jones to wear, and that seems a little, that seems a little bit of a stretch. But um, I do think that the the production design is sometimes incredible, and the street that Bruce lives on looks. I mean, it, it was transporting for me to to see it. I mean, I I, I was around, uh, I was around round about then, and um, uh, I, you know, I, I have memories from from the seventies that 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 felt like that. It's, it's, it, but that's, I mean, that that's good for for the film. I think it needed to work for that because you did feel that everything was a bit dull, everything was a bit confining, and that that's what you're looking for, isn't it? And I think the you know Cemetery Junction is is a great title for many many reasons because that's you know it's you you know these people are at a crossroads, and you know it, yeah. It works I mean, it was going to well. be called the Men from the Prue for the very for a very very long time. I mean, this was going to be their follow up project to The Office. And uh, it was going to be on BBC, and and you know it's gone through a lot of transformation since then actually. And it was only maybe about twelve months ago that it, it started becoming known as, as Cemetery Junction. I'll tell you what though, if I went out the front door now and I hopped in a car in in half an hour, I'd be in Cemetery Junction, and a lot of what of what I'd see on route would be very similar. I mean that is literally the sort of architecture and and, and geography of, of 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 my youth really. So I think that that from a very subjective point of view, that helped me invest a lot in it. Yeah, but I mean, do you think that people who know this is written by Gervais and Merchant, um, do you think that they would expect a big screen version of The Office? Maybe, but, you know, screw them. I think there were some people who were quite touched by what happened in the last episode with Tim and Dawn. Mm. Um, and and it, it, if that is the most emotionally resonant than the off- that The Office became, and that was what these people responded to so strongly. I think there are some moments in this film that they respond to even more strongly. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, the thing is that I, I, I wrote in my review that um, the bits with Ricky Gervais in it, I thought were fine, but they did seem to stick out a little bit because he is such a personality and because people know him. He's on the poster, of course, to draw the um, to draw the crowds in. But I think that um, the fact that he kept himself quite restrained, relatively restrained, I think is a good thing because you didn't get the feeling that this was... Um, that this was something that it was all about, you know, Ricky Gervais playing himself like he did in Stardust, like he did in Night of the Museum, that sort of thing. It's well, not Ricky Gervais yeah. doing that. I, I mentioned Raining Stones earlier, actually, and, and one of the, the, the crossovers between this film and Raining Stones is that there's a moment in Raining Stones where Ricky Tomlinson accepts a cash handout from, from his daughter. She gives him, like, a fiver, and it's this moment where it's sort of really... You know, to do with his pride and to do with his need to provide for his children and to do with how poor he is. Do you know what I mean? It really strikes an amazing chord. It's a very emotional moment. And, and there's a sort of a more straight-up version of it where 
where he hands some Ricky Gervais's character hands hands some notes over to someone, mm. and and it, it wasn't. I mean, it was. A, I guess it was a very honest honest moment, and it, it it can be understood if you remember that time when when you know a, a five bob note was worth the work. Do you see what I mean? Sure, absolutely. And, and when and when you know if you come from a working class background and 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 something like that can 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 make all all, all the difference. Hey, I tell you what, I've got a favourite cameo in this film. What was your favourite cameo in this film? I. Don't remember too many. Tell me who your favourite one was. The leader of the band, the guy, the lead singer of the band, mm. is Master Holness, who was Garth Marenghi. You're kidding, I didn't even realise. Oh, uh, yeah, and I love Master Holness. I was just glad to see him again. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. And that's, again, that's part of the retirement ball scene, which was, you know, one of my favourites. So, oh, well, there you go. Were there many more cameos in there? Obviously, you know, Stephen Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a few little ones. Do you know what I mean? You've got mm. Boyd, Boyd Hilton, the film I, critic. Yeah, I heard about that. That's very strange. With a wig on. Um, there's a few. I mean, there's a few. There's a few. But um, I, I, like, you know, people look for Matthew Holness. I won't spoil any more for you. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I really like Sanctuary Junction. Um, I'm hoping that people get, do go out and see it because I was thinking about this. I saw this quite close to when I saw Kickass, and I'm thinking this is the kind of film that's coming out of Britain now, and I think could be done elsewhere but I think there's a real sort of charm to it and I was really really pleased to see Gervais and Merchant restrain themselves and concentrate on what you know the important part of it was which was you know the story and the heart of the story um you know and it has a great message and I think it's done really well so um thumbs up from me Brendan you are going to take the lead on the next film because I haven't actually seen it yet this okay. is Roman Polanski's The Ghost tell us what about it well it's about a ghostwriter who's um brought in to finish the memoirs of a British Prime Minister after the previous ghostwriter um, has been found dead on the beach, apparently, of suicide. Um, the film is adapted from a novel by Robert Harris, who uh, clearly intended this to discuss Tony Blair and what Tony Blair's part in the Iraq war was. And it feels like Hitchcock. It feels not like the best Hitchcock, but it does feel like solid Hitchcock, T certainly in, in terms of its overall overall uh, design, um, Hitchcock would have had a, a field day with, with this. Um, and it's interesting that it's a it's a very uh, genre driven construct that's there to make a very uh, bold statement about the relationship between the UK and the US. Um, and the way Polanski has staged and filmed it is at once uh, definitively in his style. And also uh, quite quite clearly uh, indebted to Hitchcock, and not for the first time in his career. I mean, if you look at Frantic, most obviously uh, that film was a, an homage to Hitchcock, and in in a slightly different way. So is this one? Okay, um, Pierce Brosnan also stars. I think he is the Tony Blair character. He is the. Prime he is indeed Minister. Adam Lang, Adam former Lang. Prime Minister. Former Prime Minister. Okay, and uh, Olivia Williams, I believe, is uh, is is the wife. Ewan McGregor plays the the ghost writer. Uh, and Brendan, did you happen to notice at the at the end when the titles went up if they actually had the title "The Ghost Writer" there? Because well, see, this is interesting. The opening, very opening shot of the film. They get the opening titles out of the way like this. Bang! Right. It's a shot of a of a of a lighthouse, and as the light swings around, it illuminates the words "The Ghost." But during the sort of uh, integrated end credits, as it were, it's called "The Ghost Writer." And that's because that's the uh, US title. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was ever going to be called The Ghost Writer here or if they just decided to do it, but I heard that they didn't take it off, so it may, may have confused some people. But um, let's delve into the performances a little bit because um, 
I've heard that the that is quite Hitchcockian in 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 what it does, and that obviously seems to come off quite well. But let's talk about the the players in it: Ewan McGregor, um, Olivia Williams, and Pierce Brosnan. How do they figure into it? Are they any good? Well, McGregor and Brosnan are a little bit crap. I mean, I think they're always a little bit crap, to be honest, in some way or another. Um, uh, McGregor had a bit of a difficult accent to sort of wrestle with here. Which one and is Bros- it this time? Wow, it's sort of a bit cockney. Oh no! Okay. Yeah, I know. I know. Why does he do it? Why does he not just do it? In it? I mean, what did this add? Do you know what I mean? It's like the Mendes Derek not... goes, isn't it? And, yeah. Oh gosh, I didn't see just, the point just, in his one. Just, just shifted the location of the character. It wasn't part of the subtext. It wasn't important. Um, so, um, you know, having be having be Scots or whatever. But um, he does a bit of a Cockney accent, and and Brosnan does does something a bit weird. There's occasionally he's called upon to do these things that. Are, uh, quite clearly Blairian. Do you right. know what I mean? Blair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at those times, he lapses into something a little bit like an impersonation. And then at other times, it's like, oh my God, it's Pierce Brosnan playing Pierce Brosnan again. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? And I, I thought he was a really fine Bond. But you got to remember where he come from. I mean, things like Remington Steel. I mean, this guy was sort of, that's what he's cut out for, you know? Mm. And it's interesting that... that um, uh, actually, that sort of starts folding into some sort of strange. When the clues start coming together, that starts sort of meaning something in a funny sort of way in this film. Okay, excellent. Which is it, which is interesting. Um, yeah, not a great deal is made of it, but it does sort of it shades it a bit, right? Mm. But Brosnan's not like fantastic. Olivia Williams is pretty damn good, and Tom Wilkinson, who's got a crucial role, is pretty damn good as well. Um, Kim Cattrall's kind of got a thankless role. She does okay. Okay. Um, most of the supporting cast are, are playing at sort of a you know slightly less naturalistic level than we're used to these these days. But but then the the, the film is it sort of feels like I mean it's interesting if you look at some sort of recent Hitchcock fueled movies mm. going back as far as I said Basic Instinct or um, uh, What Lies Beneath they've got certain things in common and it's almost like film filmmakers are sort of mapping out what a, a modern Hitchcock would have been like, really. And right. they're all sort of seemingly in agreement about it, because Polanski's actually made a lot of the same choices too. But I suppose it's just it's just if you if you project some of how, uh, you know, how the set design and how some of the the staging w- w- was done in a, in a Hitchcock to, to, to modern techniques, you, you, you go down a, a similar road, I guess. But it's it's very handsomely made. There's a, there's a there's a sort of a a, a trick denouement. The, the the last shot sort of sticks out like a sore thumb because there's this interesting thing about Polanski, and it's the way that he decides how to stage his scenes. He gets the actors out to act the scene on the set, and he'll stand from what he thinks is a good vantage point from when they start, um, and they'll watch them and they pay attention to where he was looking. And then if he's paying attention to both of them, he'll do it in a mid. If he's watching one of them, he'll do it in a close-up. So he sort of like pays attention to where his eyes track and when, and that sort of gives him an idea where the camera should be and when it should move, when it should cut. Um, and that's brilliant, actually. I mean, that's, that's, as, that's as good a way to intuit it and to give yourself a first draft of how you're going to say something as, as I've ever heard. Um, but the last shot doesn't work that way. It sort of holds off on what a natural observer would do to create a particular sort of effect. And and that's that's when I think he's in, in his most overt homage to Hitchcock mode. 
Um, but it's good. It's good. It's a little bit daft um, in the best possible sense, and it's a little bit overwrought. Some of the acting's not great, and the the the, the music is is definitely sort of goes up to eleven a, a couple of opportunities, and some of the rear projection style um, uh, special effects. You know, I mean, I say rear projection style because they're not, but they look like they are. That's how sort of like uh, dodgy some of the effects are. All do sort of um, all do sort of put in mind of, of of some of the some of the Hitchcocks we've loved. There's a tracking shot towards the end with a little note as well, which is which is pure Hitchcock. He loved it. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. There was um, the, the pretty, you know, odd trailer that, that came out that, that I kind of thought that looks interesting, but I'll have to see how it plays out. But you'd recommend it, yeah? I definitely recommend it, but don't expect it to feel totally like a contemporary film. It's got one foot in the past. Yeah, I have to say that the um, from what I saw in the trailer, and of course that's the, it's just the trailer, it looked very stylized in terms of the locations, in terms of what he was choosing to, to put on screen Um the the rain the fog the you know it was almost as if the literal clouding of the mystery you know that sort of happened early on was um you know was a, was affecting what was seen on screen but well yeah I mean you know all of those all of those old Hitchcock tricks John mm. basically they're uh, all you pulled off a lot of them I have no problem with someone you know looking back and taking inspiration from Hitchcock and making a good film out of it that seems like a particularly grand idea for me so um okay um the ghost I think it was out last week Brandon am I right Came out on Friday. Came out on Friday, so we'll have to um, see how that one does. But Cemetery Junction and The Ghost, both out now. Um, it should be very, very interesting to see what happens. Of course, please, please go out and see something that knocks Clash of the Titans off the number one spot. Anything. Anything, absolutely. You know. um, just buy tickets and don't even go and see the film. Just just buy tickets and, and give money to somebody else. Uh, it's interesting, Kick-Ass was, um, was out this Friday, this past Friday. We're recording this on Sunday um, in, in the States. And I don't think it did as well as people were expecting it to do. Um, now, this is baloney, isn't it? Oh, we expect this, we expect this. John, it's the number one film. Mm-hmm. And it took two thirds of its budget. That's exactly my point. Days. And if if you if you were to read it, I mean, exactly, people are saying it was it was a disappointing box office haul. But I have to say, they were quoting the figures in the reports, and they were saying it's going to take maybe a disappointing nineteen million. When of course you consider how much you know Lionsgate paid for it, and the fact that it's done really really well over here, and um, you know, I have to say that uh, because it is number one, I think that that's going to be the big the big deal for them isn't it and i was really pleased to see it um a lot of the reports that came out roger ebert gave it a one-star review and um, didn't seem to like it very much but there was there seemed to be good support for it and i wondered how people in the states would find it um because when we spoke about it i mentioned that there was um uh that there was a british sensibility to it and i didn't quite know what i meant by that but it just seemed like the right thing to say um i'm, <laughs> I'm just hoping that but, but, and let me just clarify that because i was thinking this this was made obviously you know matthew vaughan and and jane goldman and mark miller and you know and john romita jr the um the sort of creative minds behind it um are obviously all you know british or or, or thereabouts and i wondered taking on an american story how when it went to America, I wonder how they would see it, but um, it's kind of interesting to sort of see how, how it's going to play out, and of course there's going to be sequels, I would have thought as well, so I don't think it's, it's a disappointing Well, I think that's possibly saying. why it's disappointing, because they, they, they think of the rule of diminishing returns, that a box office 
uh, receipt for a sequel can be expected to be around 60% of the original. Mm. So I think that might be what they're thinking. John Romita Jr., by the way, is American. Fine, yeah. I, I knew that Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughan and, and Jane Goldman were were, were, were British, so um, I wasn't too sure about him, but that's fine. I mean, they, you know, I, I personally love Kick Ass, but I think it's, it's a really good, you know, talking point. I think for a lot of people, interesting to see how it, how it's going to do in the states and what's going to happen next. So, um, okay, that's a bit of film news and box office news. We're going to move on to just a couple of stories now that were reported last week. Um, one of them is about Brendan's favourite, Mr. Martin Scorsese, whose follow-up to Shutter Island has um, it was announced a while ago. It was an adaptation of Brian Selznick, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, and this for people if you don't know, it's. Uh, ostensibly a children's book um i've got it right next to me and it's a really really beautiful work of art it's um a lot of full page uh panels of a comic book if you like um done in pencil style it's about uh, an orphan whose father died in a museum fire and um he's now living in the walls of a paris train station um and he it's about his relationship with um the owner and his daughter of um of a toy store within the station. I'm not going to give too much away other than to say that um, George Melier, who was a pioneer of uh, early cinema, in particular early cinema special effects, um, he's got a huge part to play in it. Uh, reading it now, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm really looking forward to see what Scorsese is going to do with it. But the news that came through to, uh, just last week was that he was going to shoot it in 3D. Now, we know that this film is about to go into, um, into its shooting, I think in a couple of months' time. Um, Brendan... Now, your views on Scorsese, I don't know, but I know that they're not favourable. What do you think about him taking on this film and the fact that it's going to be in 3D? Well, I mean, you know, uh, he made some comments about 3D recently that I can't argue with. And he said that he, he, as far as he's concerned, any film could or indeed should be in 3D. And he is precious (laughs) as an example, which I found particularly funny. But, um, uh, you know, why shouldn't Precious be in 3D? I mean, it, it's just this weird, strange prejudice, prejudice against the format where people are assuming 3D is some sort of sideshow, jump out at you sort of thing. And actually, because of the nature of the story in this book, I think people may assume that Scorsese is thinking that way as well. And I think he might be... <sighs> if he gets derided for film, making this film in 3D... Uh, and he might, because Shutter Island is quite a badly reviewed film, certainly by his standards. Um, then he might sort of not do it again. I mean, I'd be interested to see what the reaction would be if he chooses to make one of his subsequent films in 3D, because they're, quote, adult movies about blokes in suits hurting each other. Um, so, um, I don't know. I mean, the fact that he's... I mean, Roger Ebert said, the day Scorsese chooses to make a film in 3D, then I'll, I'll be interested in 3D. Um, he's not... He's not actually commented on that since. It's interesting because one of the con- one of the conversations probably that, has. I don't know about it. Well, I, I, I certainly haven't seen anything. Um, and he tweets an awful lot, so um, you would have thought he would have done. But uh, when we spoke about it before, when I talked to other people, we were talking about the fact that Alice has done very well and Clash of the Titans has sadly done very well, and Avatar, of course, you know, did did what it did. But we were looking forward to um, the directors that we were interested in. Um, taking 3D and using it for something, you know, perhaps in, in, in a different style. And I would always say that things like Jane Austen, it would be really odd to see that in 3D, in the same way it would be odd to see Goodfellas in, in 3D. Yeah, but it was probably odd to see Becky Sharp in colour. 
But yeah. it isn't now. No, 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 exactly. But I think we, certainly I was hoping that you would have people who wouldn't look at 3D um, as just a way of shooting, but they would maybe use it in a particular way to to make it a bit more immersive, to do interesting things with it. Because I'm thinking you've got, in, in Hugo Cabret, um, there's obviously Georges Méliès and he... Um, from what I've heard, Scorsese is going to be recreating some of his short films now, and that means rebuilding the sets. That means actually reshooting them. I'd be interested to see what they're going to do with that if they're going to maybe make that in two D. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Melies films using so much painted backdrops and false perspective and mm. things like that uh, are defiantly two dimensional. Exactly that. Exactly. So I think it will be interesting to see if that's how he chooses to um, to do it. I mean. This was big news because it was Scorsese. Um, and I think that the fact that it is, uh, you know, quote-unquote a kid's film, I think may make it a bit more uh, easily accessible to, to people who don't like 3D. Um, my view on 3D, if it's done, you know, well, like Avatar, and I've got no problem with it, with that badly like Clash of the Titans, then, you know, I, I think it's it's a waste, particularly if people have to, you know, start paying more for it and are maybe expecting a, a bit too much from it. Um, but I'm, I'm really, really interested in, in, in Hugo Cabral. I'd love to see what Scorsese is going to do with it. And I think the fact that it's in 3D is not necessarily here or there, but I think it could be interesting if he does make, a, make it um, a narrative tool as opposed to just... You know, a film in 3D, but um, I'm sure I'll be happy when I when I go and see it. So, um, uh, Brendan, we're going to move on to the next bit now. This is um, another bit of news which was, I think, a couple of a uh, couple of days ago. Um, it was announced that Joss Whedon was in final negotiations. I'm not sure if it's even been confirmed yet to direct the Avengers movie for Marvel. Now, it was subsequently then reported that he was also going to be tinkering with the script, which led people to think that maybe. He might have a, you know, might do a draft of it, or he might maybe tinker with a few of the other Marvel scripts that are, you know, that, that are coming out. Um, Dear God, I hope so. Well, Brandon, let me ask you the question. First of all, we haven't talked about this, so what, what are your thoughts on Joss Whedon, and are you now more looking forward to the Avengers films or not? I'm looking forward to them significantly more than I was before. I think Whedon's uh, an interesting man with a lot to say, an understanding of of, uh, of storytelling, uh, particularly at, at, at a screenwriting level, at least. That is is uh, extraordinary. I think he's one of the the best uh, television creators we've ever had. Um, I think he, he's wonderful. His debut film, um, Serenity, I think is a joy. And, uh, and, and and I'm confident that we're going to get something at least good with the Avengers. Now, that might sound like I've built it up and then I've sort of gone, oh, at least good. But, you know, you know, things go wrong and people interfere and he's got a short schedule and he's inheriting casts and all these sort of things. So he's not really making a film under normal circumstances here. He's got a lot of hoops to jump through. But uh, they got the right man for the job. And I remember when I picked up his first X-Men comic, The Uncanny X-Men, mm. and I was immediately impressed with how accessible it was. was that and, the, and somebody who doesn't know anything about the X-Men would, would be comfortable with it. Is that the Astonishing X-Men, Brandon? I'm sorry. Uh, that. Maybe, yeah, the Astonishing X-Men. That's it. The one he did with John Cassidy. Mm. Sorry, did I say Uncanny? Yeah, yeah. No, I the, mean, I was just, I was actually hoping that he'd maybe done a few more because that was the very, very first X-Men comic that I ever bought. Uh, and it, I bought it because it was Joss Whedon. And I then bought the subsequent three volumes. And I have to say, I loved it so much. 
that um, I then began to look around for everything else he's done, all the Serenity comics and, um, uh, you know, the... Um, he's yeah, only a, a, a minority of which he's actually written. Yeah, but he's... Um, the, the, the Buffy season eight ones, I think his ones, like they were when, when he did it with the TV, when he was writing, when he was directing it, they were Stand also... out, don't they? Exactly. It's very much like the Twin Peaks thing where David Lynch would come in and do an episode and it would always be fantastic. But um, I also was... a big big fan uh, i am a big fan of joss whedon and um in particular serenity which got really really slated by people um who said it was too closed off that if you hadn't seen firefly which is the show that it was based on then you wouldn't have got it but i have to say balls to that because it's one of my favorite science fiction films um of the last I think it's lovely years. yeah but it's, it's really good and it works because you don't have to have seen it but the characters are all spot on and he knows exactly what he's doing with it i he yeah. makes great hay out of character interaction, that boy. He sets people up and then he has them bang off of each other in different permutations. That's really what's going on in a lot of his stories. He's got a theme and he'll bang his characters off of one another in a way that will explore that theme. And I think that's just, that's pure and simple. That's just good writing. And I think he's an expert. Just the amount of projects he's, he's been attached to that have never come to fruition. Well, there's it, the Wonder Woman one, wasn't there, that, that he yeah. was, he'd written a script for and never, never you know, until the live day. It was too feminist, I suppose. But um, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, having read the script for Cabin in the Woods, which is co-written by him and Drew Goddard, and I like Drew Goddard a great mm. deal too, it's just not very inspiring. Oh, really? Because that's disappointing to know. I was really looking forward to it. It was supposed to be released just, you know, by now, wasn't it? But they're, they're 3D-ifying it, I think. Is, is and they're taking good. a great deal of time 3D-ifying it. Which maybe is, that's a good thing. If, if you're going to do it, spend a bit of time. Maybe it's a good thing. And maybe they're not spending as long as, as, as they say they are. Who knows? I would, but, um, I would love to read the script because I'm a big fan of Whedon, big fan of, um, uh, of Drew Goddard as well. So it'd be interesting to sort of see how it, you know, how it plays like, out. Land. It's a bit simple. It's a bit pat. It's going to be fine. If we, if it was an episode of Buffy, you think that yeah. was an all right episode of Buffy? But this is is uh, now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Who's directing it? Is it Drew Goddard directing it? Yeah, Goddard it? directing. Okay, yeah. that's fine because it kind of bugs me that people say that that Whedon isn't isn't that good a director. But I think you know he is. Serenity proves it. Um, when they were talking, he did. About fi- this, he did fine. He, I mean, obviously he's not. You know, he's not the second coming or anything. But he's a he's a solid and sensible and smart director. Just because he can write really well doesn't mean to say that he also can't direct pretty well. Because everyone was saying um, on the internet when the, this news came out, well, he should just stick to writing. It. He shouldn't actually be allowed to direct it and maybe there you know there's there's some weight to that but i'd be really interested to see what he does with all of these movies because of course marvel are pulling together so many characters they're putting out so many films this is like a big long-haul project and the avengers is going to be the first film where you see them coming together and if you've got characters and there's going to be you know storylines and emotions going into them i'm hoping that first of all it's not a mess uh second of all marvel don't lean on him too much either because um Joss Whedon, I think. I mean, the thing is, if 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 they've given him, you know, reins to have a look at the script again, then that that can only be a good thing. Certainly, they've placed a lot of trust in him because if the Avengers doesn't work, then you've had all of these films, and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be the uh, big long franchise that they hope for. He's continuity man. It's not going to be a mess. He can come in and pick up millions of threads that he's had nothing to do with, and then weave them into something sensible. It's something he's proven time and time again. Uh, definitely in the comics, but but also. Uh, you know, with television, where you know he can take things that were incidental inventions and actually then 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 make something of them. He's um he's like Neil Gaiman in that sense. Actually, he's almost like geniuses of of episodic episodic writing. Um, you know, obviously they've got a roadmap and they 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 plan ahead, but the, but they're both 
very very good at, at making sense out of, of spaghetti. Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about how he can make sense of the narrative and the various different character positions and, and how they are all pitched at the moment when they come into that film. I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether you know. Uh, we might have some people uh, who have been cast in the film who aren't much cop. Yeah, I think you know, you know, who knows? But here's the interesting little footnote to all of this. Uh, Edgar Wright had a meeting with Joss Whedon this week. There was that tweet that he put out, didn't he? He said, "I've just met Joss Whedon at somewhere." Yeah. Uh, speculation commence, which I uh, which I love. It. He, he totally gets Twitter, doesn't he, Edgar Wright? But oh, um, he moves it. Um, so, I mean, th- th- there are a couple of ideas where that may have been uh, what that may have been uh, alluding to. Brendan, what do you think that that was all about? It's, it's pretty simple. Marvel are trying to get the Ant Man film greenlit as soon as possible. I'm, I'm, I'm confident, um, and and Ant Man's got to mesh in some sense with with the Avengers world. Either he's going to be a full on character in it, or he's going to be cameoing in it, and and the Ant Man film's going to come afterwards. Now we don't know what what order they've got these set up to to unfold in. Whether the Avengers come before Ant Man or vice versa. But whichever way it is, some form of communication between the two of them would uh, would only make sense. And why why are you so sure? Because I have to say, I don't know anything about Ant-Man. I don't know anything about Edgar Wright's involvement with it. Why do you think that that's the obvious uh, reason that they met up? Well, I can't really say too much, John, but let me tell you this. Marvel are going to announce an Ant-Man film soon. Excellent. Okay. Well, Edgar really... Wright is directing and he's co-written with Joe Cornish. There's a script. It's good. Marvel like it. Brilliant. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, and that's that's going to be something really. But not from me. But not from Brandon. It was from someone else, a voice in the ether. But I mean, how cool is this? You mean uh, when 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 Marvel decided to put all this together? Um, you've got Joss Whedon. You've got Kenneth Branagh. You've got Edgar Wright. They they're building together this this bizarre cast of, of of directors and 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 getting these these actors who it seems like every day that there's another rumor about who is or who isn't playing captain america or, or peggy carter or well know, we know we know about those we, now for yeah, sure but go forward who is ant-man that's the big question well i i don't know ant-man it seems uh, having never seen anything about ant-man it sounds a bit odd but i'm i'm happy to be to be proven wrong so uh, i keep thinking about that that mothman guy in 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 watchman um i'm sure it's nothing to do with that i'm sure it's really very good but this is uh really something special isn't it i think you know i'm i'm just really hoping that there isn't a duff movie that there isn't a, a really bad character that kind of screws it all up because no, it does jo- it well sure but joss Whedon, right he can do the almost impossible he can write a film about a bunch of grown adults did in stupid multicolored costumes that there's almost no justification for and make it seem sensible and about something i love it well i'm really looking forward to it so um so that that's news and obviously we'll keep you updated on uh, on what happens next maybe if there's an edgar Wright involvement moving there um okay we're going to move on now to our last uh, section it's our regular section it is the uh, movie resurrection roundup which is what i think i may call it eventually um it's a film that we have seen that we really enjoy that we think maybe hasn't had enough exposure um in the in the wider world so brendan i went first last one i think it's only right that you go first give me your what? excellent recommendation Okay, I've got to go first, have I? My recommendation this week is a film directed by Jack Gold. Um, you've probably not heard of Jack Gold. Most of his credits are actually TV credits. Um, this is a British film from 1984. Um, way before, you know, Gold was doing things like directing episodes of uh, Kavanaugh QC and Inspector Morse and Goodnight Mr. Tom and, frankly, 
anything with John Thor in. <laughs> um, but back in 84, he made a feature film called The Chain. And The Chain was written by Jack Rosenthal, who was one of our great screenwriters. Yeah. Jack Rosenthal is fantastic. He was uh, Maury Lippmann's husband, and that kind of is one of the reasons he was famous, because she's a national treasure, and we all know it. But he was a national treasure, and it seems to be that some people don't quite realise this. He's the man who wrote the original TV play that then went on to be London's Burning. But it's not his fault. <laughs> the original TV play was fantastic. Um, the Chain is one of the few feature films that he wrote. It was the first feature film... Uh, to be producing his screenplay after Yentl. And Yentl seemed to be like it was going to be a sort of break into Hollywood or whatever. Um, but but he didn't. He just he just carried on doing what, what, what he was doing. And the premise of the, of the chain is that a series of people are moving houses in London and the removal van company are helping them move. But there's a chain where some of them are moving into the other people's homes and so on. So it's a kind of a, a La Ronde structure. Um, and we, you know, we, we travel around London and we meet a lot of the people who are moving house that day. And, and amongst the actors, um, we've got um, uh, Alf Garnet himself um, uh, playing um, one of the, uh, the, the removal, removal men. But we've got various other um, you know, well-known actors, Billy Whitelaw, Anna Massey, Nigel Hawthorne's in there, David Troughton's in there, Phyllis Logan is in there. Um, Dennis Lawson, Ewan McGregor's uncle, is in there. Leo McKern is in there. So a lot of people that that our generation, or well, I guess I should just say my generation, <laughs> were, were very fond of. But um, you know, Warren Mitchell is kind of the um, the sort of zen zen guru at the heart of the whole thing. Um, and it is kind of episodic, but it does come together into into something pretty solid and and Jack Gold bless his heart makes a reasonable fist of it but what what gets us going is incredible and indeed indelible screenwriting and a wonderful cast really getting to the heart of the text and it's gold here's what's brilliant you go out and buy the dvd of this the special feature is the tv pilot moving story which was Jack Rosenthal's reinvention of this concept as a tv series Okay, that sounds great. Um, it's, it sounds um, it sounds as if it was was it ever meant for TV or was it meant to be? A... This was definitely a film. I mean, right. this was. I mean, it was. It's cinematic in 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 ways that some of Rosenthal's other work isn't. I suppose. Uh, you know, we travel around London. We've got a lot of locations. There's there's a sort of a. You know, cinematic in the way that a, a Richard Curtis film is, in the sense that that getting a sense of texture of the communities. Now, whether that's filtered through somebody's sensibility in the sense that a lot of people would argue it is in a, in a Curtis film um, or, or not, is another thing. But, but it, do you know what I mean? It does, it's yeah. not television. It's not, it's not about, it's not about mid shot, close up, mid shot, close up. There is, there's something else to it. In fact, the early scenes of the, 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 the film actually feature quite a few sort of vistas and so on. Um, and, and, and with narrative purpose, not just as, you know, establishing uh, um, texture, but um, it feels like a film. When you see Moving Story, the TV version, you'll you'll see the difference because that feels like television, and I mean that in the best possible sense. Yeah, I mean it feels like the first episode of something. You want you know you want you want more of it. And I don't think the entire series of Moving Story is actually um, uh, available on on DVD, and I'm quite sad about that because I really like to see the rest of it, and I never did when I was growing up. Oh, there you go. Maybe maybe you could start the campaign. You could start the campaign. I'm starting it right. right here, right now. Excellent. Moving story on DVD. 
you can pick this thing up for Tuppence. Um, Network Video have, have put it out, and they've been wonderful in putting out lots and lots and lots of Jack Rosenthal stuff, um, including you know his collaborations with with some big cinema directors, Mike Newell, and, and so on. So on. that's really interesting because I mean one of the things that I've been doing quite recently is catching up with the work of a of another writer who. Um, has done an awful lot of, of plays for TV and has dabbled occasionally and very successfully in, in, in the big screen. I mean, I um, saw Glorious 39 at the London Film Festival um, last year, written and directed by Stephen Polyakov, and I loved it. I mean, it, it, it blew my mind, and I've just recently caught up with it again on DVD, and um, it's a brilliant film. I had such fun with it, and what I, what I then did was go back and try and get as much of his work, which, you know, luckily is pretty much available um, on uh, on DVD and it's just it's just wonderful that you have these these, these writers and and you know who can direct um, but also uh, just pay so much attention to the character to the stories and it's like a breath of fresh air. Um, I saw um, Glorious Thirty Nine just recently and then yesterday Love Film sent me um, oh god or oh, terrible the proposal Sandra Bullock and and Ryan Reynolds and you know I mean don't get me wrong there's a contrast uh, for you he really is and um, it was. Uh, uh, it, it, it was there was a toss up. It was like, do we watch the Lost Prince, which is um, Polyakov's um, TV um, TV film of a couple of years ago, or do we watch the proposal? And the proposal won, sadly. But um, uh, it just goes to show that um, that there are people who are really, really good, and and Jack Rosenthal as well. Um, I, I don't know what what you think, Brandon, of Stephen Polyakov's work, but um, from what I've seen of Jack Rosenthal, he's he seems to be revered and, and 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 respected for what he does. I haven't seen much of his stuff, so it'll be interesting to uh, to check it out. Um, please do, please do. I, I mean, will, all of it, really. Um, I may. What I'll do is I'll uh, as we as always when this post goes up on the site, I'll put um, a trailer uh, for for the films that we discuss actually on the site. But also, um, may I put a, you know a link to his IMDb or something like that so people can check it out. Um, okay, thank you, Brendan, for that very sensible suggestion. My suggestion for this week is not perhaps the most serious I've ever been. Um, in fact, what I want to do now is just recommend Glorious Thirty Nine to you all because it's just it's sublime. Um, but I won't do. I'm going to go back to. Um, uh, to 1972, it's a film that stars uh, two actors playing roles which pretty much defined them um, in their careers, made for a studio, uh, which when I say the name of it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's Hammer Studios, uh, 1972. <laughs> they decided to update the Dracula myth and bring it into the 70s, <laughs> 70s. It's Hot Pants Ahoy. It is Dracula AD 1972. Um, to give a bit of context to why I'm recommending this, a very good friend of ours, um, loves Hammer and um, we, we used to have this, this Saturday night where he would come over, we would put on um, various different rather bad films and then we got um, these various different Hammer box sets. Um, Hammer of course, you know, you'll know Prince of Darkness and you'll know um, many of the Dracula films but it's things like Twins of Evil which I have to say, um, if you ever get a chance to see it, Twins of Evil is crazy. The and, Collins. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, check out the trailer. I don't think I can probably put it on the site in all good conscience, but it's um, it's a really, really fun film. And there, what else was there? Village of the... No, Circus of the Damned, is it, I think it was? Or, or Van, no, Vampire Circus is, is another one on their box set. Oh, it's just really 
yes. great films. Um, and then he brought around Dracula AD 1972. And I was thinking, this looks crazy. What is this? But you've got Christopher Lee playing Dracula, obviously. And then you have Peter Cushing as Professor Van Helsing and Stephanie Beecham as Jessica Van Helsing. And it kind of, it, it, it basically, um, the, these kind of groovy cats uh, go into a, an abandoned church and they summon up the soul of Dracula, who, of course, then stalks everyone. And it's really silly. It's really bizarre. But for me, I don't know why it worked so, so well. You put Dracula and you put Hot Pants in the same movie. And it really, I don't know, it, it, it made a real impression on me. And when you've got someone whose character's name is Johnny Alucard, which when you see it written down, you'll know why that's, that's pretty silly. Um, when you, you know, when you have characters like that, you, you don't take it too seriously, but you've got Christopher Lee. And for me, what made it was Peter Cushing, who, you know, he, who is fantastic in, in, in a lot of what he does. But when you're playing a, a character of Van Helsing, which he's played many times before, and especially in the, in the Hammer films, you know, you, don't always get the you know the best writing or the best characterization, but in this one he has to wrestle with um, with so much um, so much sort of you know uh, the moral issues of, of of what he does in terms of you know killing um, killing Dracula and, and 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 his daughter who is obviously the one that Dracula wants to go after. There's something to it that that made me sit up and think this is not just you know fangs and hot pants. This is actually something that's you know it has got moments that that really elevate it. So and I don't think anyone's seen it. Brendan, I'm sure you've seen it. What do you think of this one? Uh, seen it. I booked it for a cinema once and actually nice played one. it to, to anybody who wanted to watch it. I think it's absolutely preposterous. Um, I, I kind of enjoy it. I mean, it's nice seeing the 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 re team, right? The the Cushing and and, and Lee re team. That's fun. Um, and I think it, it's got an interesting interesting tone coming out of some of the sort of genuine sort of swinging sixties horror films, um, like The Sorcerers, uh, for example. Um, it seems it seems even more naff in a way, really. Um, but uh, there are some bits in it that are indelibly scorched into my mind, which is why I booked it in the cinema. I think everybody has to see it to get these things that have been printed in their head, right? Um, and the bit is, you know the Johnny Alucard, as you say, when you see it written down? The yeah. bit where that is written down, yeah. do you remember what I mean? Now, have you seen Shutter Island, John? Uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. I really want to see it. Good faith, he actually does that seriously in that film. It's one of the reasons that film so... <laughs> Bloody ridiculous is that he actually does something as absurd and stupid as we sit chuckling to ourselves when we're watching Dracula AD 1972. He does it with a straight face. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's crazy. In 2010. <laughs> oh, man. Outrageous, isn't it? Oh, but um, uh, uh, Alan Gibson, who directed Dracula AD 1972, is one of these sort of... Um, yeah, he's kind of rubbish. He's kind of one, he's kind of one of these, these sort of 70s hacks who... We really couldn't cut it. I can't. I can't. I mean, looking at some of his, his, I mean, I watched. You know, he did another Dracula film the year after. I, I don't remember what it is. Right. But um, I, I mean, I don't remember precisely what title it is. But I know he did another one the year after, and we put that as well. And it's just like, what are you talking about? It's unbelievable. But there is a real sense of um, of, of of location and, and time in it. It's London in 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 the sort in the seventies and the sort of tail end of the, you know, with, with the aftershock of the of the swinging sixties. And there, for me, there was just I, I didn't know what to expect. I expected it to be really really bad. But um, and it, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not the best film you're ever going to see. But there's just really something to it, and it is in those moments where you've got Peter Cushing and and Christopher Lee kind of you know coming together. And I, I, I think, 
mandatory viewing, isn't it, John? Yeah, it I'm is. In a way, because you're not going to forget some of these. You things. really, really won't. It's 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 great, great fun though, and, and and no one's ever tried to sort of you know put Dracula in you know in in the seventies ever again, which is probably a good thing. But um, Hammer makes some more sort of serious sort of seventies horror films, and there was another one in seventy two called Straight Until Morning, which was directed by Peter Collinson, who did. Um, the Italian job, and that's a film with Rita Tushingham, and it can show that Hammer could do sincere horror as well, just because it was the seventies and everybody was mm. dressed dressed like that, and they had like big daddy stashes and things. Um, it, you know, it didn't. You didn't have to go camp and kitsch. And I think Straight Until Morning and Dracula AD nineteen seventy two make a wonderful double bill because they show the two faces for Hammer. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I'm I'm very excited to see that one now. So um, you can see. I'm just the giving them away tonight. You are. I love it. You're just spinning them out like a. Catherine will. Um, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it as well because I was a bit worried about bringing that one to the table because it is kind of silly. But I think you, and uh, if there's anyone listening who went to see the Ultimate Pitch Palace in Oxford in around about 1997, <laughs> do get in, it was do your get fault. In touch. Do get in touch because the atmosphere in that room is fantastic. I love it. Okay, um, that's going to bring us to the end um, of, of, of the podcast. Thanks so much for your for your time, Brendan, and for your opinions and, and for your recommendations. It's been a lot of fun. So um, you can, of course, subscribe in iTunes to um, to the to the Mouth of Podcast. If you do, um, do leave uh, a review for us. That would be really, really kind. We're really interested to know what you think about what we're doing here or if you've even taken up any one of our recommendations because um, that's what it's all about. So uh, you can find everything we do at heyyouguys.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at heyyouguysblog. Uh, we're also on Facebook as well. Brandon, you can find uh, on slash film com pretty much all the time also check out slash film uk which is his weekly column um which comes out around about every friday so that's it for this episode i do hope you enjoyed it thank you so much and we'll see you soon bye